Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your great grace toward us. We thank you for the blessing of Christ, our Redeemer. We thank you for all that he has done for us. And Lord, we thank you especially for granting us the gift of your Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to produce this fruit. Lord, we pray that you would cause your people to walk by your Spirit now and always. And Lord, as we now open your word, we pray that you would cause these truths to sink into our hearts and minds. Lord, enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may receive these truths for what they are, uh, the word of God, not the word of man. Lord, may it be your truth that is spoken and nothing but. May you get me out of the way, and may this be the word of God coming alive in the hearts of the people of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again in Galatians, and we come now to our final sermon on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Paul gives this list in order to contrast the life that is lived according to the flesh. Uh, you may remember we looked at uh, what it looks like when we live according to the sinful nature, and Paul gave the list of the very works of the flesh. Uh, and in contrast, when we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the desires of our sinful nature, we see that the Holy Spirit of God will produce certain fruits in us. Now it's worth mentioning here that the word fruit that Paul uses is singular. Uh, he will produce fruit in us. It is all together the fruit of the Spirit, uh, not just varied fruits. As McLaren puts it, all this rich variety of graces, of conduct and character, is thought of as one. The ind individual members are not isolated graces, but all connected, springing from one root and constituting an organic whole. Now, in wanting to do justice to the fruit of the Spirit, we have broken this all up into three sermons. Uh, but we should keep in mind here that the word fruit was singular. There is an organic unity to the fruit of the Spirit. So therefore, the Christian will ought to be manifesting everything on this list. You know, some commentators actually see these as three triads here. Uh, these things going together. So the person who is full of love, joy, and peace on the deepest level, as their inner character, will have an attitude then of patience, kindness, and goodness, which will then in turn manifest in faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control uh, in their conduct. And so it is to the final three that we turn here this morning, and we pick up our list with faithfulness. Uh, this is pistis in the Greek, faith or faithfulness. Now this word can get used to simply refer to having faith, uh, but it can also mean fidelity or trustworthiness, faithfulness. And so while it is true that simply having faith, uh, simply believing the gospel, believing in God, could be said to be a fruit of the Spirit, in the sense that we know it's only through the work of the Spirit within us that anybody will have saving faith, uh, given the context here, most commentators take trustworthiness to be Paul's intention. 
So, what is faithfulness? Faithfulness, trustworthiness. This is the character of someone who can be relied upon. The faithful man is a dependable man. Someone who will follow through on their commitments. Someone who will fulfill all of their God-given duties. Now, whoever we are, whatever our stage of life, God has assigned us particular duties, and God calls us to be faithful in them. So kids, what does it look like to be a faithful son or daughter? Ask it this way, kids, what is your assignment from God? I think every kid should know this one. Uh, what is the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. Kids, teenagers, anybody still living with mom and dad? To be a faithful son or daughter means that mom and dad should be able to trust you. When they ask you a question, they get a full and truthful answer. Teens, note that. A full and truthful answer. A faithful son or daughter, someone seeking to honor father and mother, to be faithful to the fifth commandment, does not leave out important details with the intention of deceiving or misleading. A faithful son or daughter is truthful, trustworthy. When mom and dad assign a task, assign chores, they can be confident that the job is going to get done and that it will be done well. Now, employees, anybody with a job, someone who works for someone else, uh, faithfulness, trustworthiness is an excellent characteristic. Are you someone that your boss or supervisor can depend on? Or are you the kind of person who constantly needs other people to cover for you? Are you a flake? Or are you the dependable one? The one whom others can count on? A faithful person uh, is someone on whom others can rely. Now, of course, we acknowledge God's uh, providential hindrances. There will be times where uh, things come up that are beyond our control, but uh, in, in general, a faithful person is one on whom others can rely. Now, we just finished going through the story of Joseph in Sunday school, and this is one of the ways that Joseph showed his excellent character. Remember, wherever Joseph was, whatever his situation, uh, whether he was a slave in Potiphar's house, or when he was in the royal prison, or even when he was a servant of Pharaoh, he was trustworthy. He was so faithful in everything that was entrusted to him that he ended up being put in charge in every place that he found himself. Genesis 39 Verse 22 says this, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison, so that whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. 
The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Now that is an excellent picture of faithfulness. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Let that be said of us. You know, something is our responsibility. If something is your responsibility, your boss does not have to pay attention to it at all because he knows he can trust you. You will be faithful, trustworthy, dependable. You'll get it done, you'll take care of things, and if things were to go south, you'll take responsibility. Faithfulness. Husbands, are you faithful to your wives? A faithful husband will fulfill the duties God has assigned to him, chief among them being husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, the faithful husband loves and leads like Christ. Paul goes on to explain how Christ has sought to sanctify his bride, the church, to make her holy. And how if we were to love like Christ, we would love our wives as our own bodies, nourishing and cherishing them. Ephesians 5.29. Now the Greek word that Paul uses there describes the kind of care that is involved in bringing up children. It involves feeding, nurturing. Now that, of course, is not to say that men are to treat their wives like children, but rather that they are to protect and provide for them. They are to do so warmly and lovingly, cherishing, treasuring them. And so a faithful husband fulfills his God-given duties to his wife. He leads her, works for her sanctification, her growth in holiness. He provides for her, protects her, guards her, and cherishes her. A faithful husband will be faithful to the vows that he has made to her, to stand by her in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer, in good times and in bad. He will be faithful to her, forsaking all others, committing himself to her alone. Fathers, what does a faithful father look like? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A faithful father will therefore commit himself to the discipleship of his children. Now, Scripture actually has a lot to say about the discipleship of children. And without exception, every single passage that specifically addresses the discipleship of children and youth is directed at their parents, with the father taking the leading role. So we conclude that according to Scripture, parents are to be the primary disciplers of their children. Notice this, it is your task to bring them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. So fathers, 
lead your families. Lead them to Christ. Give them an example so that they may imitate you as you imitate Christ. Lead them in daily family worship. Read, pray, and sing. Show them the importance of the local church. We invite you. Bring your kids to prayer and to Sunday school. Demonstrate in all things through your actions what a faithful disciple looks like. Wives, are you faithful to your husbands? A faithful wife fulfills what God has assigned to her. Back to Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So we see a faithful wife is a submissive wife. She follows her husband's lead. She supports him and encourages him. She is careful to show respect for him, both in his presence and in his absence. She receives his leadership joyfully. While that does not mean she may never share her opinion, when a decision is made and things perhaps don't turn out, she won't berate him or belittle him for it. She, too, will be faithful to the vows she made to her husband, to stand by him in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, in good times and in bad. And she will be faithful to him, forsaking all others, committing herself to him alone. Mothers, what does a faithful mother look like? Titus 2 verse 4 tells the older women to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So we see a faithful mother prioritizes the home. She loves her husband and children. She partners with her husband in bringing up the children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. She is diligent, she is dependable, she is kind, and she is hospitable. Now in all that we do, our faithfulness is first and foremost unto the Lord. The husband leads and loves his wife as he does because... He is a servant of the living God, and God requires these things of him. The wife submits and respects as she does because she is a servant of the living God, and God requires these things of her. Notice what gets left out there. The behavior of your spouse does not impact your duties. To God. Husbands are called to imitate Christ in laying down their lives for their wives, regardless of whether or not their wives are worthy of this kind of love and self-sacrifice. Your wife's treatment of you has no bearing at all on your duty before God 
to love and lead your wife in this way. Wives are called to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. Once again, regardless of whether or not their husbands are worthy of this submission and respect. So wives, your submission to your husband is done first and foremost out of your submission to Christ. And this is true in all areas of our lives. Our treatment of others, our faithfulness, our trustworthiness, this character that we've been seeing as we've been working through the fruit of the Spirit, all of it is an overflow of our obedience to God. For it is Him that we serve. It is Him that we are aiming to be faithful to in all things. It is Him we are worshiping and serving through our faithfulness. And because He is first in our hearts, we strive to obey Him in everything. As Jesus Himself said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we are called to love even those who do not love us back. <laughs> Consider, Jesus calls us to love even our enemies. We return evil with good. When reviled, we bless. And when we are faithful to our God-given duties in all circumstances, regardless of what the people around us do or do not do. In all things, we are dependable, reliable, trustworthy, faithful. All right, let's continue on. We come now to gentleness. In Greek, this is praoutes. It is meekness or gentleness. And here again, as we've seen with love, goodness, and kindness in particular, we must be very, very sure that we are defining our terms biblically so as not to become manipulated by the world. Now the world in our day looks with suspicion at nearly any form of aggression or expression of strength, particularly in men. Now it is of course true that there have been many men who have used their strength, aggression, or positions of authority in order to abuse, harm, and mistreat others. And so of course we acknowledge the problem with those behaviors. But we must reject the solutions of the world, uh, the world which has labeled nearly any behavior that is in any way masculine as toxic. As feminist icon Gloria Steinem put it, we need to raise boys more like we raise girls, close quote. To desire to be strong, to display any form of aggression or competitive nature, or even to pursue things like independence and self-sufficiency are seen as examples of toxic masculinity. And if you don't believe me, you can go look this up. To generalize, gentleness then can come to be seen as essentially the opposite of any sort of distinctively male behavior. The message comes across to men, be gentle, which is defined essentially as become more like women. Gentleness from this perspective is seen as the opposite of strength. To be meek is seen to be weak. 
and in some ways perhaps even to repudiate strength. This is insulting to both genders, and it is not the biblical perspective. Praoutes, meekness, gentleness, actually requires strength. Now this is really cool, actually. The HELPS word study defines the word praoutes as gentle force or gentle strength, quote, which expresses power with reserve and gentleness. So according to the biblical definition of gentleness, you therefore cannot express true gentleness without strength. Gentleness is not harmlessness. You actually need some strength in order to be gentle with it. You know, to give an example, my baby boy right now, uh, just over a month old, and he is currently harmless. Right? He will not hurt you, you know, unless you get too close and scratches you or something. Um, but he simply will not because he cannot. Right? He is not. Uh, he, he is harmless, but he is not gentle. You know, as we've seen with our other children, and we will see as he grows. It is the child who has begun to gain strength with which they can harm others who must learn gentleness. So gentleness or meekness is a term that is better understood as tempered strength. Again, the Helps Word Study commenting on the word meek writes this. Biblical meekness is not weakness but rather refers to exercising God's strength under his control, demonstrating power without undue harshness. The English term meek often lacks this blend of gentleness, reserve, and of strength. Close quote. Again, to illustrate, you could think of, of a massive and powerful wild stallion. When the horse is broken by its master, it doesn't lose its strength, but its strength now becomes useful. It can now be harnessed, and its strength can be aimed. It can be directed. The horse becomes gentle. Its strength is not a threat to anyone, but instead its strength becomes an asset. And this is what our secular culture seems to be missing. We should not be trying to make our boys more like girls. We should not chastise them for their desire to be strong. Proverbs 20, 29 says that the glory of young men is their strength. We should not teach them to shun or fear strength. We should want them to be strong and then teach them to harness their strength, to bridle it, to temper it, control it in order to make it useful. Strength, power, these are not bad things in themselves. Just consider. Jesus was meek. Jesus was gentle. He was also the most powerful man to ever walk the face of the earth. And so to be gentle does not mean to be weak. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, you may remember when we looked at uh, biblical sexuality, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, said that the malachoi, the, the effeminate or the soft man, will not inherit the kingdom 
of God. Men are not to play the woman, and so we should not be raising our boys to be more like girls. And we should see them that teaching them the virtue of gentleness does not mean striving to make them soft. As Michael Foster, a non-tenant, writes, Men today desperately need to hear this message. There is no hint in the Bible that your aggressive instincts are a result of the fall. You are not, in other words, a defective woman. Let's quote. Now, in our egalitarian age, we have lost sight of what men are for, and as a result, we have no idea what the typically masculine traits are for. You know, we looked earlier at some of the responsibilities that God has given to husbands and fathers. We've seen that God has tasked men with providing for their families. Men have been tasked with protecting their families. You know, when you look at the difference between the average man and the average woman, what you'll notice is that God has uniquely equipped both of them for their respective roles. Men with their increased upper body strength, higher levels of testosterone, and generally higher levels of aggression are better suited by God for the role of provider and protector. Foster and tenants again, your desire to conquer and subdue, to hew down and to build up, to form and to shape, has nothing to do with the curse. It is man's natural, pre-fall, created purpose. If you read the book of Genesis, you see God created man and gave him the task of dominion, to rule and to subdue, to build, cultivate, and explore, and men are equipped by God for this task. Masculine strength and energy, when properly directed and harnessed, builds civilizations, fruitfully ordering the world in God's stead. God has given us a mission in the creation mandate and has equipped us for that mission. And so we see, creationally, strength is not a bad thing, but due to the fall into sin, it can be dangerous when it is not mastered. Learning gentleness, then, is learning to master our strength, to temper it, to harness it, to use it for good. If we were to teach all the good men to be soft, we would not create a less violent world. We will simply have cleared the way for the bad men to dominate. It's been well said. That's all that's necessary for evil to triumph, is for good men to do nothing. And so if we really want to protect our women and children in society, we should not be seeking to raise soft men. We should seek to raise gentle men. And as John Wayne put it, you have to be a man before you can be a gentleman. God has given us strength. And as with everything that he gives, we are called to use it well. So let us learn gentleness. A man's strength is intended to support, defend, and provide for his wife. The strength of a godly man will never be used to intimidate her. A gentle man's 
wife and children, should feel and be safer when he is around. For strength, when harnessed and mastered, is an asset. It is a comfort. It is a blessing. So let us be tough for our families and tender with them. Let us learn true gentleness. Now we've been focusing here on the men since this is where a large part of the cultural assault has come in relation to this issue. But women as well are called to be gentle. You know, if the secular culture has been striving to make men soft, it has simultaneously been striving to make women hard. And so the cultural attacks we see are not just aimed at masculinity, but rather at the distinction between the sexes. Again, to generalize, the virtues that feminism praises in women are some of the exact virtues that it would condemn in men. If a man is aggressive, he is thought to be overly competitive, domineering, and toxic in his masculinity. If a woman is aggressive, she is empowered, inspiring, and a true go-getter. So in our culture, true gentleness in women is often distinct. And so both men and women must learn not to care in the wrong way about what secular culture would seek to teach them about sex. After all, we should not be taking our cues from people who don't even know which bathroom to use. While the struggles and temptations often look different in some ways for women than they do for men, we should not take the perspective that women are naturally virtuous. All mankind, men and women alike, are fallen in Adam, and therefore need to be redeemed through Christ. And so women, too, must learn gentleness, must seek not to be harsh. And it may not be the same temptations for men, but it is very, very possible for women to lack in gentleness. And so we see gentleness is fruit that the Spirit of God will produce in his people. Temper your strength. Become a gentle person. Once again, not weak, but meek. Gentle. In control of your strength. Using it at the right times and for the right purposes. And that brings us to our final virtue, the last on our list in the fruit of the Spirit. And that is self-control or ingratia. Now the prefix here, en, uh, means within the sphere of, or in, and kratia, or kratos, is strength or dominion. So ingratia is a really cool word. Uh, self-control means self-mastery, self-rule, or dominion within. And so a person who is lacking in self-control, who is lacking in self-dominion, will likely find that they have many possible masters. For some people who lack self-control, their masters are their emotions. Right? They start to feel something, and that feeling dominates them. That feeling starts to take over, and that emotion finds its way into the driver's seat. Now, this is one of the main challenges that are faced by 
small children in particular. They have big feelings and they lack self-control. Quite frequently a volatile combination. And so you see when emotions or feelings become the rulers, they become the masters. And so one of the great tasks of parenting is to teach children self-control, self-mastery. Now this is another area where our secular culture has a very different message. And we may actually be more influenced by it than we even realize. Just consider it's a fairly common perspective to view our feelings as though they are some communication from our deepest and most authentic self. After decades of Disney's advice to simply follow our hearts, Many have become convinced that this is, in fact, the best path. A biblical view of mankind, however, would show us the folly of such advice. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we see from Scripture, sin has infected our hearts. It has infected our emotions which makes our emotions lousy guides for a life of godliness. Rachel Jankovic has some sound advice. Quote, Christians should be far more inclined to view our feelings like a bunch of monkeys that we are responsible to keep in cages, train, and disregard completely when they start acting up. Close quote. Because of the sin in our hearts, the ways in which sin has infected our emotions, there will be many, many times in our lives when our emotions are not good guides. And so the Christian duty will then be to disregard them, and at times actively battle against them. Our emotions are not the final arbiters of truth. And in fact, if we were to take seriously the Bible's teaching about the heart of man, this would make us very cautious in trusting our emotions. Now, it doesn't mean that our goal is uh, some sort of stoic, emotionless existence, the elimination of emotion, but rather, in learning self-control, we are learning to keep our emotions in their proper place. Self-control self-mastery. Now another common master of the person who will lack self-control is the lusts of the flesh. People who lack self-control tend to be self-indulgent. Instead of controlling themselves, they will hand the reins over to their appetites, gluttony, drunkenness, uh, various addictions. These sins stem from a lack of of self-mastery. The glutton is ruled by his stomach. Food becomes the area of self-indulgence. For people with addictions, they have so given themselves over to alcohol or nicotine or whatever the drug that they have become mastered by it. Or perhaps it is sex. Lust and pornography can take a hold on someone so that they are ruled by their lusts. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Brothers and sisters, Christ is to be our only master. We must not give ourselves over to other masters. We must not be dominated by anything. Christ, our true master, calls us to exercise and to cultivate self-control, self-discipline, self-mastery, self-dominion. And so we must not, therefore, be ruled by our lusts, our emotions, or by our appetites. Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. He who rules his spirit. So how do we do this? How do we begin to develop self-control, self-mastery? Well, that could be another sermon in itself. But I'll give you one step here. And the first one, I believe, is a big one, and it is a mental one. Fix it in your mind that you are responsible for yourself. That will mean putting an end to all of your excuses. And again, I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else. Jesus told a parable about a master who went away on a journey, and before he left, he entrusted his servants with some money. To the first he gave ten talents, the second five, and to the third he gave one. Now the first two servants began to work diligently with what they had, but the third servant went and buried his talents in the ground. When the master returned, the first servant came and said, Master, look, you gave me ten talents, and behold, here are ten more. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter in to the joy of your master. And so also the second servant, Master, you gave me five talents. Behold, here are five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter in the joy of your master. Finally, the third servant came and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. The master said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, that at my coming I should have received what was my own, with at least a little bit of interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to the one who has ten talents. For, everyone, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Much like the servants in Jesus' parable, we all will stand before our master and have to give an account. Your master will ask you 
What have you done with that which I entrusted to you? And you might be tempted to say, but God, you don't understand. Things were harder for me than they were for other people. Right? I only had one talent. That guy was given ten. You know, I had this difficulty and that challenge. Things were much harder on me than for others. God will say, I know. I'm the one who gave you that one talent. I'm the one who arranged your life. I know you had it harder than some others do. I'm not comparing you to others. We're not talking about others at all. I'm asking you. Were you faithful with what I entrusted to you? Did you practice and cultivate self-mastery, self-discipline, and self-dominion? Or were you blown about by every wind of desire and emotion? Did you surrender yourself to self-indulgence, the lusts of the flesh, and the desires of your eyes? Did you take responsibility for yourself? Or like your father Adam, were you too busy pointing fingers at everyone else? Brothers and sisters, there may very well be more challenges that you face than the next person does. But we must understand that this does not let us off the hook. Although we may have been truly victimized in our lives, we must not adopt a victim mentality. For a victim mentality will paralyze us and cause us to point fingers rather than to take responsibility. And the fact is, no matter what others have or haven't done to us or for us, we are still responsible for ourselves. So firstly, if we would exercise self-control, we must be done with excuse-making. We must take responsibility for ourselves and fix it in our minds that no matter what happens to us, it does not remove our responsibility. Our Lord and Master has freed our wills. Though we once were in slavery to sin, we have been set free in Christ. And the one who the Son sets free is free indeed. We must understand Christ has not only purchased our salvation, and that he has done, praise the Lord, our failings as servants, Christ fulfills in our stead. Hallelujah. But he has not only uh, paid, purchased our salvation, he has not only paid our ransom and set us free from the penalty of sin, but he has also set us free from the power of sin. We are no longer in bondage. We have been given the Holy Spirit of God, who dwells within us and grants us the grace that we need in every circumstance to honor him. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 says this, No temptation has seized you, except that which is common to man. 
And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do not make excuses. They will not fly when you stand before God to give an account. Walk by the Spirit and find in Him everything that you need to live the life that God is calling you to live. Pursue God. Get in the Word. Work to cultivate a life of prayer, to cut out the bad habits in your life, and exercise self-discipline. Be faithful in all that God is calling you to do and to be. Temper. Master your strength. Be gentle. Be like Christ, who is faithful in all things to his Father's will. Be like Christ, who although he was the most powerful man to ever walk the planet, tempered his power, displayed through gentleness. Be like Christ. Learn self-dominion. Master your emotions, lusts, and passions so that you may glorify and serve your true master. Be like Christ and put away all your excuses. Although he was wronged and mistreated, he did not embrace the mentality of a victim. In fact, Christ did the polar opposite of Adam. Where Adam was faithless, sinned, and blamed his bride, Christ was faithful, obedient, and took responsibility for his bride. Walk by the Spirit, follow the example of Christ, and grow in faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control.